Chapter 11 Man, the Agent of Transformation The Lord at first did Adam make, out of the dust and clay, and in his nostrils breathed life, e'en as the scriptures say, and then in Eden's paradise he placed him to dwell, that he within it should remain, to dress and keep it well. Christmas Eve, Traditional English Carol, Stanza 1 Man is the crown and captain of creation. Celebrating man's exalted position, the psalmist sings, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou dost take thought of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him? Thou hast made him a little lower than God, and dost crown him with glory and majesty. Thou dost make him to rule over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Psalm 8, 3-6 The Bible affirms the greatness of man in his very creation, for God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the cattle, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Genesis 1, 26 A survey of Genesis 1 will show us the great things that God has already done and that his image would also grow to do. God had given structure to a formless world, and filled an empty world. He had organized the oceans and the lands, and established ecologies. Such things as these would man, ruler of creation, also do. God's intentions for man are set out in Genesis 2.15. Then the Lord took the man, and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate, that is, serve it, and to guard it. There are two tasks here, and we shall call them man's kingly, or basilic, and priestly, or hieratic tasks. It is significant that man's prophetic task is not mentioned here. Service is the essence of man's kingly task, and guarding is the essence of his priestly task, as we shall see. Man's understanding of these two duties was to be progressive. Though made like God, Man was to become more and more like God through a process of growth and maturation in his image. Man as King First, God brought animals to the man to see what he would name them. Man would learn from the animals and acquire wisdom from them. Acquiring knowledge and wisdom is the first part of man's kingly function. It is his scientific task to understand the world before working with it. Solomon is the great example of a king in the Bible, and we are told of his wisdom as he investigated the creation. And he spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. 1 Kings 4.33 An example of how Solomon named the animals and learned from them is in Proverbs 6.6. Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise. Another example is Proverbs 30, 24-28. Four things are small on the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are not a strong folk, but they prepare their food in the summer. The badgers are not a mighty folk, yet they make their houses in the rocks. The locusts have no king, yet all of them go out in ranks. The lizard you may grasp with the hands, yet it is in king's palaces. Once man has begun to understand the world, he can begin working with it. Building on his scientific task, thus, is his aesthetic task of beautifying the world, advancing it from glory to glory. 
Here again, Solomon is the great example, as his beautiful temple and palace show. As we have seen, working with the creation is always analogous to working with human beings, for the things in the creation are images of men. Moses and David, for instance, became leaders of men by first being shepherds of flocks. And Jesus learned leadership by working with the recalcitrant wood as a carpenter. Adam was actually told to serve the garden. And the word used is the same as that used for slavery in the Bible. Service to the creation would teach him how to serve his wife, his children, and other men. True kingship is by service, and is never apart from service. Jesus said that, Those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Mark 10, 42-45 The lives of Joseph and Daniel and others show that it is through humble service that God's people become rulers. The lives of Saul and David show that if a man forgets to be a servant after he becomes a lord, he will lose his kingdom. After all, the purpose of rule is not domination, but glorification. If my goal is to glorify and beautify my wife, I will not abuse her. If my goal is to transfigure and exalt my neighborhood, I will not destroy it. If my goal is to Jerusalemize and heavenize my land, I will not pollute it. God had an ulterior purpose in having Adam name the animals. From his examination of them, Adam realized that none of these animals was a helper peculiarly suited to him. For that, he would need another human being. Now that Adam realized that human society was necessary, God acted to provide it. In accordance with the creation pattern, God sovereignly took hold of Adam and put him to sleep. Then God divided Adam by removing flesh and bone from his side and restructured humanity into male and female. When Adam awoke, God distributed the woman to him. Adam gazed upon her and gave her a positive evaluation. This, at last, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Genesis 2.23 Finally, Adam expressed that this condition would continue, that the situation was at rest. For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Verse 24 At this point, it will be well to note that the act of making a new creation is simultaneously an act of generating a new covenant. Marriage is a covenant, according to Malachi 2.14. Covenant making in the Bible entails dividing and restructuring, and that is what we have seen here. In the remainder of this book, we shall look more fully at God's acts of restructuring and initiating new covenants in history. The point here is that human society is organized by covenant by acts of separation and restructuring. Eve is now part of the garden, and it will be Adam's task to guard her as he guards the garden. This brings us to his priestly task. Man as Priest Systematic theologians generally locate man's priestly work in the area of worship. As the Presbyterian Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, Christ executeth the office of a priest, in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God, and in making continual intercession for us. Question 25. Without contradicting the insights of systematic theology, 
Our purpose here must be to uncover the biblical imagery surrounding the priesthood. Just as man's kingly task proceeds from scientific examination to aesthetic transformation, so his priestly task has two stages. First of all, as a priest, man establishes or reorganizes pre-existing boundaries, and then he acts to guard those boundaries. Adam was to recognize the boundaries of God's holy garden, just as he recognized the names of God's animals. Then Adam was to protect those boundaries against invasion. In human society, it is actually a priestly task to establish and enforce boundaries. In the church, those boundaries are established by baptism and safeguarded by excommunication. In the state, which also has a priestly role, the boundaries are political and are safeguarded by military force. Property boundaries are established by covenanting acts among people in society and are safeguarded by the state using police powers. Preeminently, of course, the priests guard the house of God. The most elaborate picture of the measuring function is found in Ezekiel 40 and following, where a man with a measuring rod measures off the new temple of God. For the most part, however, the Bible shows the priests guarding God's holy boundaries. They determined who was clean and who was unclean, and all thus who could approach God's tabernacle. Leviticus chapters 11 through 15. They challenged sinners who dared to transgress his threshold, as Azariah confronted King Uzziah. 2 Chronicles 26.16-23 Primarily, though, the priest guarded God's throne by leading the people in worship. People who truly worship God will not disobey Him. Thus, the systematic theologians are right to say that the priest's primary task, in one sense, was to offer sacrifice to God by leading men to become living sacrifices. Just as God brought animals to Adam to teach him about society and his kingly task, so also he brought an animal to Adam to teach him about holiness and his priestly task. The serpent, or dragon, was the most beautiful and wise of all the beasts of the field. He was doubtless one of the great monsters created on the fifth day. Indeed, the use of the word create in Genesis 1.21 points to an especially wondrous work. With God's permission, Job 1 and 2, Satan used the dragon to challenge Adam and Eve. The assault was directly against the woman. Since it was Adam's task to guard the garden and all within it, he should have guarded her. Instead, he stood by and let her fall. Genesis 3.6 says he was with her during the discussion. He failed to guard the garden and admitted the enemy. We noted above that the priest's primary means of guarding is through worship. What should Adam have done? He should have led Eve away from the serpent to the tree of life. There he would have led her in rendering obeisance to the Lord of life, admitting his own need for life from God. He would have taken the fruit and given it to her, as Jesus, the new Adam, feeds his bride. In this way, Satan's designs would have been thwarted. Instead, however, Satan was given access to the garden. By receiving food from Satan, Adam and Eve acknowledged him as their priest. They were disqualified from guarding the garden, and new cherubic guardians were set up in their stead, Genesis 3.24. During the Old Covenant, God set aside men to fulfill the office of priest in a special way. These men led others to the door of the garden, tabernacle, temple, etc., but not inside. The priests themselves could only go into the holy place, into the most holy. 
Only the high priest could enter there, and only once a year, Leviticus 16. These exclusions pointedly reminded the people that access to the garden had been lost due to sin, and only the work of the Messiah would give them renewed access. Until that time, the priestly boundaries would be guarded primarily by cherubim, and only in limited ways by human priests. Man as Prophet One thing that emerges from all this is that God was acting to provoke human growth and maturation. Adam grew to understand his need of a wife, and then was married. Adam was to grow to see his need for a robe of authority, and then he would be given it. This is most clearly seen if we examine what the Bible means by man as prophet. Here again we have to sidestep the traditional definitions of systematic theology, which, while not wrong in themselves, do not go far enough in uncovering the biblical theological motives involved. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, to return to the example used earlier, says that Christ executeth the office of a prophet in revealing to us, by his word and spirit, the will of God for our salvation. Question 24. This is true, but there is more to being a prophet. The full meaning of prophet is council member, a member of God's divine council. Originally, that council consisted of three persons, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. Man, created in the image and likeness of God, was created to be a council member, though clearly below God in the hierarchy. Cast out of Eden, man was cut off from the council. Under the Old Covenant, only a few men were ever permitted, and then only temporarily, to function as council members. Abraham Heschel has written, The prophet claims to be far more than a messenger. He is a person who stands in the presence of God, Jeremiah 15.19, who stands in the council of the Lord, Jeremiah 23.18, who is a participant, as it were, in the council of God, not a bearer of dispatches whose function is limited to being sent on errands. He is a counselor as well as a messenger. Amos 3.7 is worthy of citation on this point. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. Understanding that the prophet is someone God consults with shows us why Adam had no prophetic task in the garden. He had not yet matured to the point of being made a council member. He was a priestly guard and a kingly shepherd, but not yet a prophetic counselor. I believe that Adam would have become a prophet by eating of the tree of knowledge. Certain Old Testament saints stand as striking examples of council member slash prophet. One is Abraham. When God was about to destroy Sodom, he asked himself, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Genesis 18.17 God proceeded to tell Abraham his plans and asked Abraham what he thought. The remainder of the story is familiar to everyone. Abraham gave his advice and counsel to God, though always in a deferential manner, respecting the hierarchy. It is in the light of this that we can understand Genesis 27, where God told Abimelech regarding Abraham, Now therefore restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. As a council member, Abraham the prophet could bring petitions before the council. The second great example is Moses, who is the exemplary prophet of the Old Covenant, Numbers 12, 6-8, and the greatest before John the forerunner. Moses not only received information from the council and passed its decisions on to the people as he ascended and descended Mount Sinai, 
He also actively argued before the council when he felt it necessary, even changing God's mind on occasion. Exodus 32, 7-14, and verses 30-35, as well as Numbers 14, 13-19. This is not the common idea of what a prophet was. There is no ranting and raving here, nor is the prophet simply someone soberly possessed by God so as to become his mouthpiece. Rather, it is as a council member that the prophet announces the council's decision to the people. Vandervelde sums it up. The prophets are not only privy to the divine council, 1 Kings 22.19-23 and Isaiah 6.1-5, they are participants in God's plans. When God announces judgment, the prophet is not afraid to challenge God. Amos asks God to forgive Israel because Jacob is so small, Amos 7.2. As Heschel aptly puts it, Amos does not say, Thy will be done, but thy will be changed. And in the case of Amos, the Lord concedes. He repents. It shall not be, said the Lord, Amos 7.3. The pivotal role of the prophet as one who stands in the counsel of the Lord, and who becomes a partner in the unfolding of God's covenant plans of judgment and salvation, is crucial for understanding the way in which the New Testament people, as a whole, may be considered prophetic people. John the Forerunner was the greatest prophet of the Old Covenant, according to the testimony of Jesus, yet the least in the heavenly kingdom of the New Covenant would be greater than he, Matthew 11, 7-14. As a council member, John was privy to more information than any other prophet ever had been, John 1, Yet matters were not completely clear even to him, Matthew eleven three. Living under the Old Covenant, before the veil was torn and heaven reopened, John's access to the council was limited and partial. It would not always be so, however. God had given Joel to prophesy that when the New Covenant arrived, everyone would be made full-time council members. And it will come about after this that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, and even on the male and female slaves will I pour out my spirit in those days. Joel 2, 28-29 Not just men, but women also. Not just adults of full strength, but also youths and the aged. Not just free, but also slaves. Not just Israel, but all flesh. All would be privileged to sit with the council. All would have a voice in the decision-making processes though each according to his station. Jesus prophesied the same. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. John fifteen fifteen. The king's friend was his closest privy counselor. 1 Kings 4, 5, 2 Samuel fifteen thirty two through chapter 17, 15, and 1 Chronicles twenty seven thirty three which explains the full depth of the statement that Abraham was God's friend, James 2.23 and 1 Chronicles 27, and Isaiah 41.8 and Genesis 18.17. In the New Covenant, all are made kings' friends by baptism. There is an historical progression, thus in the Scripture. We see this in an interesting note in 1 Samuel 9.9. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he used to say, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. A seer was not a council member. He was one who knew God's will and proclaimed it, 
but without being consulted. At the time of the inauguration of kingship in Israel, there was simultaneously an elevation of the seer to prophet. This historical progression in Israel shows the pattern of maturation for the individual as well. In the area of prophecy, men go from being hearers of God's word to seers who explain God's word, and finally to prophets who are consulted by God. God hears the prayers of all, of course, but in the fullest sense, being a prophet is a privilege of maturity. In the area of kingship, men start out as students, learning about the world. Then they become warriors, fighting for God by serving others. In Israel's history, this corresponds to the period of the judges. Finally, they became kings, giving direction to human life and society. Finally, in the area of priesthood, men start out as followers, led to worship by the priests of the church. They can then become deacons, Levites, who assist in leading men before God. Finally, they can become elders or priests in the fullest sense. It is the destiny of all redeemed men to become prophets, priests, and kings in the fullest sense, though not all serve in official capacities in church or state. Conclusion Man was designed by God to be his agent for glorification of the world. As men matured in their tasks, however, they themselves would also grow from glory to glory as prophets, priests, and kings. Though sin sought to wreck God's design, through Jesus Christ we have been put back on track. May God raise up a generation of mature Christians who can see the world as it truly is and serve it according to his will.